about 23 miles that way, that way, I'm, I think I'm right, <laughs> is the Appalachian Trail, about 23 miles up the hill. Up the hill. You've got to go over Massanutten, but then over the, uh, the next hill over. And I've been a section hiker on the AT for years now. I've hiked all the way through the Shenandoahs and uh, the National Park up here. In fact, I've hiked from Georgia into Pennsylvania so far. And after I get an 1,100-mile uh, checkup or 1,100-mile tune-up, God willing, I'll be back on the, on the trail again next summer. But I have a confession to make about hiking the Appalachian Trail. I, I don't know if you're like this. I love those maps. I love the little uh, Appalachian Trail Conservancy maps that they send out. Well, they, you have to buy them. But, uh, but I love those maps. I love my Appalachian Trail maps. In fact, I'm kind of obsessed with them. I don't, and when I was a kid, I loved maps too. So uh, we got the National Geographic forever and ever and ever when I was growing up. And, uh, and there would be the map section every now and then. About once a quarter, they'd put a map in the magazine. And I'd get that, and I'd just pour over those maps. They were fascinating, fascinating. So some people, though, think maps are boring, but obviously I don't. Yes, I, now I do have an app. You need to know that. I did come into the 21st century hiking. Uh, I do have an app on my phone that I use. It's pretty handy, but it's not as great as an actual map. Now, in my time of hiking, I, uh, on occasion, I've been in a wilderness situation, and the map isn't just fascinating at that point. It's literally a matter of life and death. If you are not on the trail in some places, and uh, this back earlier, you know, 10, 15 years ago, nobody had read that book by Bill Bryson, and uh, nobody, you know, there weren't that many people on the trail, and sometimes you would go a whole day and not see anybody. And so if you got off the trail and you got hurt or something like that, you would just end up being a bad smell in the woods somewhere. And I didn't want to do that. It was a matter of life and death. You know, the AT is crisscrossed with a lot of confusing alternate routes. If my buddy, Greg Jinks, who hikes with me most of the time we're here, I would go into great detail how you can get sidetracked off of, off of one of those wrong routes because he led us down one way uh, that for miles and miles, it seemed like, and I'll never let him forget that. But I, but I want the trail. I want the trail that's going to take me to the next stop on the Appalachian Trail. And then I want, it, I want the map that will take me all the way to Katahdin in Maine, where the trail ends. Now, there are some folks who think, say things like this. Now, listen, uh, I don't need a map. I can rely on my inner sense of direction. I don't want to be bound by a piece of paper when I can trust my heart to lead me to Katahdin, Maine. And then there are other folks that say, well, it really doesn't matter what trail you take. All paths lead to Katahdin. Still others say, you don't have to take the map for what it says. It's all about how you interpret the map. Everyone interprets maps differently. Who is to say one interpretation is better than another? Now, we have a highly technical term for folks who approach hiking like that. Uh, that term is, term is lost. Lost. Lost as Easter eggs, as we say. Recently, there has been a new crop of backpackers who have criticized traditional hikers for their preoccupation with maps. They say things like, we are way too literalistic. They say things like, you know, that's not a real mountain or a real river. Those are just lines printed on paper. These people don't realize how silly that sounds. These folks are just as likely to end up being a bad smell in the woods as the crowd who think that they don't need a map at all. 
And of course, we know that the map is, we know that the map is just a piece of paper and symbols. But here's the point about maps, good maps. Every bit of it corresponds to reality. Every bit of that map corresponds to reality. Otherwise, it's useless. The map is literally true in that it accurately represents the real world. But traditional backpackers have enough sense to know that the ranger station doesn't literally look like a little house with a stick figure ranger inside. We know that. Thank you for telling us we're too literalistic. No, we know it's a symbol at that point. Well, that's the way it is with, listen, the doctrines of the Christian faith. That's what the doctrines of the Christian faith are like. Doctrine only sounds dull and boring until you, re until you realize, like a map, it's literally a matter of life and death. Literally a matter of life and death. Doctrinally means teach doctrine, doctrine, the word doctrine means teaching or instruction. So doctrine leads us to the truth about God, to the truth about ourselves, and to the truth about eternal life. And without sound doctrine, we're like all those foolish backpackers. We're lost. We can be lost. Our doctrine map for the Christian life is, of course, the Bible. We live in a time in which many people, even many people in the church, are like foolish hikers. They think that the Bible is optional and that they can rely on their inner sense of direction. Or they try to evade the clear teaching of Scripture that challenges their life by claiming it can be interpreted in any number of equally valid ways. Father Aubrey Spears calls that position, he says, he calls it this because he's, he's smart, and he calls it interpretive pluralism. Interpretive pluralism. I really like that. And this is what he says regarding interpretive pluralism. He says, many Christians have concluded that we simply cannot make an open and shut biblical case for much of anything. And so the reality of pervasive interpretive pluralism undercuts the functional authority of the Bible in the lives of these Christians. It's not that they dispense with the Bible, it's just that Scripture no longer speaks decisively on many issues. And the problem for those who, who would adopt that position is that we stand up, we stand the chance of ending up like those, uh, those foolish hikers, just being lost, just being lost. Now, sometimes when you're hiking, you will meet someone who on the, on the trail who's walked that way before. There's part of the trail I've hiked on multiple occasions. There's a stretch from Max Patch to uh, Hot Springs, North Carolina. And Hot Springs, North Carolina is a great trail town. It's so much better than Damascus, Virginia. Oh, wait a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did I just say that? Oh, yeah. I'm gonna, I am going to get a call from the uh, uh, people's warden now, for sure. So, uh, no, but I love, I love Hot Springs. And, uh, and I've hiked that trail many times because a lot of times when I'm introducing people to the Appalachian Trail, it's a good little 20-mile hike do it over a couple of days, and then they end up and they get a pizza or whatever they want to get when they get to Hot Springs and everybody's happy and they feel like they've really accomplished uh, things. And occasionally you'll meet people like that who've walked that trail many times before. Well, in the Christian life, we have that too. It's called tradition. Now, some of us are just scared plumb to death of tradition. Again, deep theological terminology. I'm so, I hope you can keep up. Plumb to death. All right. So anyway, scared, scared plumb to death. Uh, so anyway, they're afraid of tradition. They, you know, tr the first thing that comes in their minds is tradition of man. 
But Paul says, remember the tradition in Thessalonians, first or second Thessalonians, remember the traditions that we left with you. So it's called tradition. It's the witness of faithful men and women who have walked with Christ to the end of their journey. They enrich the doctrine map of Scripture and they help us understand the Bible better. It's in their wrestling with Scripture that gives us things like the Nicene Creed. And we're going to say the Nicene Creed this morning. And other statements of faith that distill the truth of the doctrine math, map of the, of, the God, of the Bible into memorable, short, little pieces of, really, literature that teach us the doctrines of the church. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, in all the mess of modern thoughtlessness that still calls itself modern thought, there is perhaps nothing so stupendously stupid as a common saying Religion can never depend on minute disputes about doctrine. It's like saying that life can never depend on minute disputes about medicine. It is a fact that many a man would be dead today if his doctors had not debated fine shades about doctrine. It's also a fact that Western civilization would be dead today if its doctors of divinity had not debated fine shades of doctrine. And so that brings us to today, which is Trinity Sunday. And it points this day, this doctrine points to perhaps the most important teaching of the Christian church. Because to reject the belief and reject belief in the Holy Trinity is to place yourself outside of the Orthodox Christian faith and it will imperil your immortal soul. Now, why is that? Well, here's the reason. People say, well, why is that doctrine so important? Well, since Christian faith, listen, since it centers around the person of God who is revealed in Jesus Christ, the Christian faith is about the person of God revealed in Jesus Christ who's entered into this world for our salvation, that desires us to be, to be in relationship with him. The most indispensable doctrine of all then is who we say God is. Who do we say God is? Let me give you an example of this. Um, say I was going to a family reunion somewhere. Uh, I think we've got family in Arkansas. Sandlins are out in Arkansas. So part of my family is out in Arkansas. Never met a single one of them. Don't know them. I just know because somebody told me on Ancestry.com that I've got family out there. And so I fly into Little Rock, Arkansas, and my family member who has never met me is going to pick me up at the airport. And they have been told, they've been given a description. They said, look, look for a short skinny, blonde-haired man in his 20s. <laughs> That's Ben Sharp. Well, I would never get picked up at the airport. I would never go to that family reunion to have a relationship with my extended family that I had never met before. Why would I not be able to do that? Because they were given the wrong dis description of who I was. You, so knowing who God is, who he has revealed himself to be, is indispensable for us being in a relationship with God. Otherwise, we get the wrong description. Don't be looking for that skinny 20-year-old blonde-haired kid. That's not who Ben Sharp is. Likewise, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, reveals who God is. So based on the witness of Scripture, remember that Matthew passage, the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? And remember that 2 Corinthians passage, uh, the, uh, the blessing of God Almighty, the blessing of God and, uh, and uh, fellowship of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus Christ. I didn't say it right, I know. It's kind of like our current uh, president trying to, to quote the 
Declaration of Independence. He can't do it either. And <laughs> the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So Christians believe that there is one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here's what we don't believe. Are you ready? We don't believe in three gods. Sometimes we get uh, accused of being tritheist, but we don't believe in three gods. We also don't believe in one God who simply shows up in three different modes or three different guises. Like in the Old Testament, he would be the Father. In the New Testament, you know, he's uh, Jesus. And in the church age, he's the Holy Spirit. That's a heresy, and it's called modalism. Oh, that's modalism, Patrick. We'll see who got that meme just then. In fact, one of the ways you can tell you're a heretic is if you have made the Holy Trinity understandable. If you've made the Holy Trinity understandable. Listen, uh, we brought our dog Gus with us this week, and, uh, and Gus has told me, because I can understand Gus. Well, no, actually I can't. Uh, not a bit, as, as, as a matter of fact. But he seems to demonstrate that he never wants to go home. He wants to be farm dog for the rest of his life. He has had the best time. Uh, the other day he was out there, and, and I think this is what he was thinking. He's like, have you seen these enormous dogs in the pasture? These are the biggest dogs I've ever seen. I need to go bark at those dogs. I didn't let him do it. So if those are your cows, he didn't do it. But, uh, but he's loved being up here. But no, seriously, my dog does stuff. My dog does stuff that I completely don't understand. Why do dogs go zoomy? Do you know what zoomies are? It's like when they go ripping and tearing around the house. And if you're 85-pound German shepherd ripping and tearing through the house, you notice that. I don't know why he does that. Well, here's the point. If I can't understand my dog, why do I think I'm going to understand the Holy Trinity? Why are you going to say to me, hey, preacher, if you can explain the Holy Trinity to me, I'll become a Christian. I'll say, well, if you can explain your dog to me, you know, you'll be doing something pretty amazing at that point. So in the, in the unity of the Trinity, in this triune God, at the very heart of God, there is a community of mutual self-giving love. So the, this, this activity of eternal energetic love and adoration in the, in the inner life of the Holy Trinity means that God is not some static or motionless almighty boulder inertly existing from before all time instead what christians believe about uh, about god revealed as holy as holy trinity is that in the inner life of god it's kind of like a dance you know the early christian theologians had a word for the inner life of god and it sounds like a terrible intestinal condition perichoresis perichoresis have you got perichoresis i'm so sorry I think they've got a treatment for that now. No, perichoresis, it just means, literally means, peri means to around. Choresis is the word where we get choreography from. So that word means to dance around. It's a description of the inner life of the Holy Spirit, of, of the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is perichoresis. There's this wonderful, energetic, gifting one to another of love and, and glory to one another within the, within the unity of the Godhead. From all eternity past to all eternity in the future, God is, God is just loving on God. God is, is dancing around in his own being with the other persons of the Trinity. And so here it is. <clears throat> the bottom line is this. God exists in a loving, dynamic, eternal community within God's own self. Now, this, that seems like, okay, well, that's a very nice point of theology, but why does that matter? 
Here's why, where the doctrine of the Holy Trinity becomes absolutely necessary, not just for understanding God, but for understanding ourselves. First of all, we need to recognize this. Um, God did not create us because God was lonely. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that growing up. God was up in heaven, and he was feeling mighty lonely. And so he stooped down, and he got him some mud, and he made him a man. Well, that's, a, that's just precious, but it's heresy. It's just heresy. Uh, there's actually a term for this thing where God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't feel lonely. It's called the aseity of God. You don't need to know that, but there really is. Christians have thought about that. See, he's always existed. He's never been lonely. God has always existed in community. All of creation, therefore, since God doesn't need anything, all of God's creation are expressions of God's grace and overflow of his love. They don't come, nothing in creation came because God needed it. All of existence is a gift. You, you know, uh, you've heard the phrase, you know, they think they're God's gift. Well, guess what? You literally are God's gift. You are God's gift to the world. Because God didn't need you. He loved you into existence. Out of the abundance and overflow of his love. So the Bible also, here's why it matters also, is that the Bible clearly teaches that we're, we are created in the, we heard it, image of God. That's right. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27. So I want to suggest to you that to be made in the image of God is not merely about having the ability to think, and reason, although I think that's probably a part of being in the image of God. It's not merely that we have creative abilities and can share in God's work of creation, although I definitely think that our creativity is a part of being created in the image of God. But I think maybe predominantly God's image in us is that we are created to live. Listen, if God is an eternal community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the unity of the Godhead, to be created in the image of that God, we are created to be in loving fellowship with God and with our brothers and sisters. We are created for community. That's a part of being in the image of God. If we were to continue to read into Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 this morning, we would have heard, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. That is the first thing God ever said was not good in creation, was for us to be alone. In fact, John Milton penned these words, loneliness is the first thing that, God, that God's eye named not good. Loneliness is the first thing that God's eye named not good. You know, sin strikes at the very essence of our created existence, therefore. If we're created for loving community with God and with one another, it strikes at our, our purpose because sin destroys community. It inherently isolates us from God and our neighbor. What's the first thing that Adam and did, Eve did when, they, when they, uh, they found out that they had sinned, when they sinned? Well, they, they got them some fig leaves because they said, holy smokes, we're plumb naked. And so what, what that really is, though, is that they created, they created a barrier between each other, distancing themselves from each other. And then what did they do? They hid. They hid from God. Sin destroys fellowship with one another, and it destroys our relationship with God. 
And that's why Paul says in Romans 8.13, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. It's, it's, a way, it's actually a form of death. The flesh draws us away from community to focus merely on ourselves or on our own desires, on our own appetites. And before we know it, before, before, we, know, before we know Christ, we are cut off from living in fellowship and community with God and neighbor. It's really a form of living death. So Jesus saves us by taking on our brokenness upon himself in his humanity, in his humanity, experiencing the isolation and abandonment that our rebellion against God created so that we can experience the fellowship and community with God we were made for when we accept Christ, we repent of our sin, we receive him and are baptized. That's why, so Jesus takes on our isolation so that we can have the, the benefit of his everlasting community with the Father. Someone has said, well, actually, it was me. <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I, I, have it, I have, like, color code on my... Uh, on my, on my uh, so, because if this, if this thing blows away... Because last, you know, last Sunday, the, my notes were kind of, like, blowing away. If this blows away, we all need to go get shelter. Because it's like a brick. But I've got my own little color coding uh, scheme here, and... And I've actually color-coded my own statement as a, as a quote. We'll just treat it like it was something worth being read. Uh, but all human loneliness echoes with the ache of our loneliness for fellowship with God. In fact, I think we would write that one down. All human loneliness echoes with the ache of our loneliness for fellowship with God. So to be in Christ, to experience the, uh, God's gift of salvation means that we are restored to that life-giving community with God and neighbor for which we were created. And that's why Jesus tells the apostles, we heard it today in Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So salvation brings us into the life of the community of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what we were all created for. In the core of our being, we're created for family, for belonging, for fellowship. And God's family is not some sort of abstract concept. It's a very visible and real community, and we call it the church. And you need to hear me on this, because this is an ancient teaching of the church, and yet it's quite shocking. It is impossible to be a, well, let's just say a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ and not be connected with the body of Christ, the church. You were made for that, that community. I was made for that community. Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. It's important. St. Cyprian of Carthage, writing around the year 250 A.D., yes, that was way before those, that bad old medieval Catholicism. St. Cyprian said this. He said, it's, it's a Latin tag, and you might have heard this and not... I'll, I'll read that tag. It's extra ecclesium nulla salis. Extra ecclesium nulla salis. Outside the church, there is no salvation. Outside the church, there is no salvation. As people delivered by Jesus Christ from the alienation and death caused by human sin, the image of God has been restored in us so that we can live in, a commun in community with God and with our brothers and sisters. And the primary community for that 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 expression of that fellowship is the church. You know, we are a family of people as church at various stages. Every one of us in this room 
is at some place along a stage between brokenness and conversion. Salvation is, is yes, it's a, it's a moment. It's, there, I would say there's, it's punctilious, at least in one sense, that you know, when we, at some point we, we cross over from being dead in our trespasses and sins and into new life with Jesus Christ. And that happens in different ways for different people. But always, at some point, it uh, means repentance, faith in Jesus Christ, and baptism. But it can happen in a lot of different ways. But along the way, we're always being, I guess you could say sanctification. We're, all of us in this room are on a pilgrimage somewhere between brokenness and sanctification. And we're not a perfect community, all right? And by the way, if you're visiting with us this morning, and you're, uh, I want you to know I'm not the pastor here. I'm the interim pastor. So this, actually community, this community is actually a little more perfect when Kevin's here. But we're not a perfect community at any time. Someone has said that the church is often like, a, often like a community of porcupines, each one of us longing to be touched, cherished, and embraced while simultaneously inflicting pain on those who try to come too close. But this is the family that you were called to. This is your forever family. You're stuck with each other for eternity. And at some point, you're going to be so happy about that. And it's in this family that God makes us beautiful. He makes us beautiful in this family. Um, you know, as many of you know, Cole and Kayla, who are not here so I can talk about them, uh, are, are getting married. And, uh, and we've, as we've been having conversations leading up to their wedding, um, one of the things that God wants to do in our marriages, because it's the primary community of the family, is that he takes broken people, but he makes us beautiful. Through, if we stay together in covenant community, he makes us beautiful. If you stay together in church, he will make you beautiful inside and out. In this family, God mysteriously forms his own character in us, and he catches us up into the life of the blessed Trinity. And the central act of Christian worship that we're going to do this morning is actually an act of fellowship with God and with neighbor, and it's called Holy Communion. That's right, communion. Eating a common meal together. And in this meal, God pours out his life. The Holy Trinity pours out his life into us. He draws us deeper into fellowship with him and with our brothers and sisters so that at this table, we will get a foretaste of that perfect fellowship that God offers us in the kingdom. And that is why Trinity Sunday matters. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Lord Jesus, please take this truth from Scripture and apply it to our lives. Help us to see the beauty of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Lord, help us to grow in love for you and for one another as we, we say every Sunday and we hear that commandment from you, Lord, and, and make that real in our life. And, and Lord, begin to do that again anew this morning in this fellowship meal with you and with one another at your table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.